Safe Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Jess. I'm Anna, and today we have Maria. Hello. Maria, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your research? Yes, of course. Uh, My name is Maria. I come from Italy, and at the moment I am a first-year PhD student in history. My research is about uh, the role of female students in colonial Bengal popular movements. Oh my god, that sounds so interesting. How did you get into that area of research? Okay, this is kind of tricky, confusing, I don't know. The interest in India, I don't know where it came from, so it's just an interest I picked up uh, when I was very young. But the specific topic of female students arrived from my email project. I did it about uh, the Bengali politician Shubhas Chandra Bose, who in his work during the independence movement uh, involved both students and women. And it was kind of new for the time. And uh, so I start wondering, okay, we have women on the one hand and students on the other, but what about women and students? So I wonder if there was a specific subjectivity in female students, different from general students or general women. And I'm sorry, I'm showing my ignorance, but what kind of period are we talking about? When is this happening? The period is the period of more or less Indian independence movement. So it's uh, from the beginning of the 20th century, more specifically for Bengal 1905, the period of the Bengal partition, to 1947, which is the year of Indian independence. So you're looking at kind of student activism or student experience? Student activism, more. But uh, there are also a kind of double perspective because there were specific student student activism movements, but also women association who uh, involved also students. So it's uh, this kind of division. So you're in the early early kind of parts of your research. Have you got an idea of what sort of methodology you're going to be using to go forward with that? My idea was trying to recover the original narratives of famous important female students. So, so far I was trying to find uh, memoirs uh, or autobiography of famous, uh, especially more than students that were revolutionary, revolutionary women, and uh, trying to address it with, uh, I don't know if you know it, but Ranajit Guas' prose of counterinsurgency. So trying to read between the lines of the text and trying to go uh, farther from the colonial narratives and trying to recover the agency of these women. That sounds very, very interesting. And I think, you know, especially this is a high time for student movements in general. And, you know, talking about students, obviously, these are people who are more likely to get engaged with stuff like media and press. So is there a transnational element to this movement? Is there a transnational element to this activism? So far, what I've found out is that uh, not uh, the student mo- Indian student movement itself at the time had a uh, transnational uh, um, identity, but uh, when students uh, involved in student movements uh, were linked also to communism, at that time there was uh, an international prospect and connections. Coming back to the women activists, why specifically women? Because we rule. <laughs> yes, but so my problem a lot of the time with studying me studying women is the fact that I'm I feel like I'm expected to. 
And that makes me want to not, right? And I respect what you do, Jess. Marie, I think it's, it's amazing and wonderful stuff, right? But every single time I present at every single conference, there is always a white man, usually American, who stands up and goes, but have you thought about women? That's why I do it. So no one ever has to ask me that question. Mostly it's why women? <laughs> well, that's the problem, right? You're going to be asked either one of those questions. But yeah, like, because of how much women activism kind of in the early 20th century developed, you know, all around the globe, those people created some of the foundations of how women do activism. And I think that's, that's something quite interesting there. And I think it's really exciting. Yes, the issue with India women is that uh, they are often cast in the background, except for a few women who were revolutionary who did uh, very strong acts uh, like throwing bombs or murder attempts. And the historiography, even the subaltern studies, have pointed them as exceptions, both in a good way, so they were like goddesses or saint-like martyrs, mm. or as... Uh, rebels so in both ways they were not women they were deviations and uh, i don't think that's true because okay you can act in a way people do not expect a woman to act a woman to act but you are still a woman so mm. that's one part of the answer to why women and the other is because i am a, a woman too so yes <laughs> i kind of feel uh, womanly i don't know I felt like when I when I first started doing history, I was the same man. I was like, I'm not going to do women's history because everyone expects it. And then I started doing it, and it was just like, oh my god, this is so amazing. But also, I feel like I imagine there was something quite distinctive. You're not just studying women just because they're women. I imagine there's a very distinctive mode of women's activism among the female students, right? I was just thinking, you know, about this period. Russia has a lot of female-led political terrorism. To be honest, the, the one essay on gender that I've done in my undergrad was on anarcho-feminism and how, you know, the tradition of anarcho-feminism kind of migrated from Russia into China um, and how those ideas were around. And it's That sounds really great. Also, don't do terrorism. <laughs> terrorism, bad. But, you know very interesting to study you said that like a lot of the women that you look at or that you're not looking at those women who kind of sacrifice themselves they were kind of exceptional but to an extent surely a lot of the students that you look at were probably from like elite or upper middle class families right yes exactly and uh, this is kind of interesting because it uh, presents uh, many theoretical questions and issues uh, because on the one hand this uh female students, uh, of course, being students, uh, belong to rich families, uh, middle-class families, who allow them to have a proper education outside their uh, house education that was typical of the time. And uh, on the other hand, they were still women, so somehow they were still subaltern. So there is this double perspective of being privileged but subaltern at the same time, which is very interesting. And that sort of mirrors what's going on in, in Britain. We think about or female campaigners in early 20th century Britain, or Russia, as you say, and are like, yeah, they're really impressive, but most of them came from these like, quite privileged backgrounds. And yeah, they're sort of ethical. How do you navigate that sticky terrain? It's, it, it's, it's interesting, but it sounds really fascinating. 
Do you find that those women who were martyrs, then they became sort of symbols for the rest of the women's activists, or were there other role models, were there other modes of behaviour that they were trying to, to replicate? Uh, they did become uh, examples. Indeed, that was one of their aims when they did uh, terrorist activities, was to cast a strong example for both men and women. However, they became an example as long as I have studied so far, only for uh, other revolutionary women or people, while the majority of uh, Indian population who was involved in popular movements at the time, uh, socialism or the national movement, uh, were following more Gandhi and uh, his non-violent program, and therefore they end up having different models that were taken from uh, religion. Also for these women, there was the idea of being like goddesses, but uh, more regular goddesses like Sita, who was presented by Gandhi as the ideal Hindu wife, and uh, other models that were very regulated by traditional narratives. So what sort of things are these women campaigning for? Is it independence or students' rights? It was, as, as long as I've searched so far, it was more for uh, uh, independence. At least that was the reason why these uh, female students entered into the political arena. But uh, at some point, you can see there is a swift between uh, the uh, national movement in general and social issues uh, linked also with uh, women's rights and feminism. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I think you probably will find, like Anna, you said, the transnational element will probably start to bleed in. At some point, yes, probably. Absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And... Do you find that there is sort of a political spectrum then within this women's activism? And do you find that some of them are actually quite traditionalist? Because that's, you know, especially when it comes to Gandhi's movement, it's very much kind of rooted in tra- traditional religion, my understanding of it at least. So is it is it quite conservative, that movement? It is and it is not, uh, because uh, Gandhi, of course, has taken lots of traditional elements, uh, mostly from Hindu religion, but some elements... Uh, actually allowed some novelty, especially in women participation to political movements, because uh, taking this idea of Sita as the ideal woman who uh, resisted uh, the attempts of uh, the evil uh, demon Ravana to take her away from uh, her husband Rama, Gandhi projected this image on the Indian women fighting against the British uh, Raj, and therefore using this religious imaginary allowed them actually to step into the nationalistic movements. Of course, uh, Gandhi wanted them to do traditional tasks like uh, spinning the wheel and making cotton instead of buying the British cotton, instead of, uh, I don't know, going into the streets and protest. But still, he has allowed them to participate in political life and therefore he gave them lots of freedom that before it wasn't granted for women. So using these traditional lenses, it somehow managed actually to make them step outside the traditional space for women and enter into political activities. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it's always very interesting to see other modes of protest which aren't, you know, the physical protest out in the streets, especially since economic participation from women in this period is very much protest-like. Yes, exactly. Actually, I think that now that you say it, uh, Gandhi's regulated women participation into the nationalist movement was strictly with economic things uh, and boycotting British goods uh, because uh, women, as I said, uh, uh, made the, the clothes. 
and notable the British one, and also they banned, sometimes physically stopped their friends, other female friends, from going into shops that sell British clothes and things like that. So it probably, now that you told me, has this economic aspect that I had not considered so far. I mean, again, politicized consumption. Around 1905, you've got big boycott in China of American goods to protest China Exclusion Act in, in America. So you've got these, these examples of politicized consumption. It would be very, very interesting to see how your research, how it might come out there, especially considering how much power women, you know, as often being in charge of the family budget and, and in charge of, you know, buying supplies for the kitchen, how much power their decisions as consumers can have economically. Yes, that's super interesting. Mm. <laughs> I will definitely check for these things. I just sent you some literature. Good old Marxist feminist literature. Got it in my back pocket. So I'm interested in why Manchester. Are you supervised by Anandita? Is that right? Is, is that why you wanted to come to Manchester? Exactly. That's the reason. I have read some of her works when I was living in Kolkata three years ago. And uh, I found them so original. And I was like, okay, I have to do a PhD and I have to do it with her. That's amazing. And, and are you enjoying living in Manchester? Yes, a lot. It's really nice. I thought it was... Uh, bigger actually more uh, I don't know messy maybe but uh, I actually <laughs> like it very much it's not so huge as I thought I think it's pretty messy though I don't know I've been living in India so probably not as messy as India that's why Manchester is an interesting place because um, like in Russia if a city is big it's mostly made out of high rises and I think it's similar sort of in India and in China if it's a big city you immediately think really tall buildings and then, you know, Manchester is pretty flat. In fact, it's similar to my home hometown, Brescia. So maybe I like it because of that. It reminds me of my hometown. That's really nice. And how is your English so good? Probably because my mother teaches English. So I have uh, family influences. So you didn't do like a degree in English or, or anything? This is all. I just pick it up. I mean, I took some lessons, but. I pick it up myself mostly, so from my mother or TV or music, that's all. Because Anna, you as well, like you're you're both. I mean, Anna's done studying in England since BA, but I'm just it's impressive that you've been able to like start a PhD in something that isn't your mother tongue, and then to write as well and write like well. It must be so. Do you find it hard? Yes, it's it is it is a write it takes so much time because. Usually I write with a very Italian structure and then I have to rewrite using proper English. And I use a lot of Grammarly because uh, I make a lot of silly mistakes and Grammarly helps me, saves me actually. And like expressions as well. I remember when I was doing French at degree and using like lingue. Have either of you ever used lingue before? Never you basically, basically like it's really great because it, if there's like an expression in English and you want to know just like the... Not a literal translation, but like the idiomatic translation. You kind of type it in and it kind of crowdsources translated websites almost of where they would have used like a similar 
phrase in actual French rather than typing into Google Translate and hoping for the best. And it was really good, yeah, when I had to do like French essays in French. I mean, I, I can speak French, I promise. But like those certain, certain idioms that you just would never pick up is really good lingua. Yeah, I mean, early in my degree, I worked out that the best way to translate when it came to um, historical person or historical event because obviously they are often referred to very differently in different languages. What I would do is I would go to the Wikipedia page and then switch the language. Such a good, yeah, good sound. I do that too. Yeah. But I guess you've also had the opportunity to practice your English in India. Yes, I did. And uh, I don't know, I felt that... Now I'm going to say something very controversial, but I felt that my English was fairly better than local people. So at some point I had also tried to learn a little bit of Indian languages, especially Bengali, because uh, people prefer not to talk in English. Even in university, some professors preferred giving lessons half in English, but half in Bengali, and I was a little lost, so I tried to learn a little bit of Bengali. So as actually, thinking, going back to your sources, if you have you managed to consult any sources yet? Some, any archives or online papers? Online, only online, unfortunately. Yeah. Are they mostly in English or are there some Bengali texts? There are some Bengali texts, mostly newspapers. And I'm kind of leaving them behind for the moment. <laughs> Oops. It's all right, you've got two and a half years. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, also, I guess you could you could source some help. Like I've, in the past, helped people translate sources from Russian. And I think there is sort of a shame among academia. You know, I have to try and read the original text. But sometimes it's difficult to do. Mm. And you can just ask a native speaker to help you with it. And I don't think there is... There is really that much problem with it. I think like that sort of stuff only really comes really integral if you're doing like an actual linguistic analysis. And if maybe if you are like reading between the lines, as you say, that might be quite important to like read against the grain. But I remember in my first year of the PhD, I was reading loads of Foucault and I was like, oh, I'm just going to read him in French and see if it comes across any easier. And I was just like spending hours reading it. I was like, nah, fuck it. I'm just going to read the translation first. I mean, Foucault is incomprehensible in English. Well, that's why I thought if I read it in French, it might be a bit more simple. Because, you know, they have fewer words in French. So I was just like, you know, it might just be an easier way to learn. But it just, when you start getting to words that he's like made up, like heterotopia, I'm just like, nah, I need, <laughs> need to read it in English. See, my big problem nowadays is the fact that I, I try to go back and have a look at some Russian scholarship. And then I find reading it quite painful because I got so used to text in English, but also because UK already has this shift to, okay, let's try and write academic texts in human language. And Russia still didn't have that shift. So they write it in a very, in this very dry language. Reading it feels like you're chewing on granola. It's like, you know, without any yogurt in there. There is no yogurt. There is just granola. And... (laughs) I, yeah, I kind of like granola, but I'm thinking like maybe just like dry oats. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I like granola. I just like granola with some yogurt. Yes, with your, yeah, yeah, you do, you do. Right. Otherwise, it's a bit like <laughs> it's the thing, right? Like it's there is some really tasty information in there. However, it needs some smoother language mm. to transmit it, and this is where the problem the problem really comes across. 
But that's what I think I'd struggle with so much if I was doing a degree in a second language because I really like love the process of making writing lovely. Like even my academic writing, I like spend lots of time to make sure it's, yes, it's like comprehensible, but like written in a comprehensible but lovely way. And I think if I was to then just do it in another language, I don't know, maybe my language is not, but I think I would just struggle. I think the more you write, the better you get. And that's just, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. Yes, that's true. I mean, both of you speak excellent English, let me just say. So we often ask people um, what like the funniest part of their research is, which seems kind of weird if you're looking at kind of campaigns for independence. But have you come across any funny stories? Have you got any funny stories from your research? Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of the female revolutionaries I have uh, read about uh, is named Bina Dash, and uh, she was a young Beng- Bengali woman. And at some point, she got jailed because she tried to shot uh, the uh, governor of Bengal. And while being in jail, she had uh, a vision of uh, Lenin coming to her and telling her that uh, the way Indian revolutionary acted. Uh, was not the best, at least for for himself. <laughs> so, so what did she think of Lenin? Yeah, was this a good dream or like a nightmare? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think it was uh, half and half because uh, she was actually writing an essay about Lenin. So probably she was happy just to see him in her dream, but uh, he ended up scolding her and uh, her fellow revolutionaries. So. <laughs> no one likes to be scolded by Lenin. No one. Nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sounds sounds like an absolute nightmare. You see, the thing is, right? Lenin had a speech impediment. Oh, which is which is quite common in Russia, where you can't properly pronounce r a sound, and you kind of pronounce it as a. <laughs> and um, I always find it really funny because he made all of those impassioned speeches, and luckily we've got recordings quite a lot of quite a lot of them. But th- this particular speech impediment is often associated with children. I used to have it. I had to have speech therapy to correct that. So it's kind of quite childish and cute with quite a strong message. And then I just imagined Lenin telling her off, but but with that. <laughs> so like the equivalent of like a list kind of so it's an interesting image but it does sound like a fever dream an absolute nightmare yes indeed thank you so much maria thank you very much for coming and we are very excited to see where your research goes we should have a catch-up episode in a year's time and thank you for having me here thank you very much jess for co-hosting And thank you, Anna. (laughs) Thank you very much, our dear listeners, for listening. And remember, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. And don't dream of Lenin. (laughs) Or or do, whatever you're into. I'm not going to judge you. Whatever flows your boat. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter at NSFP Podcast, or you can email us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.